Well, good morning. Would you take your Bibles and find Colossians chapter 1, verse 24? Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. I'll be reading verses 24 and 25. Paul is writing from prison. He spent about two years in chains when he wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. And he writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. That is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. It is so good to be at the Fellowship of Wildwood this morning. I cannot tell you how I have been looking forward to worshiping with you today. I have such a great love for this church. I have such a great love for your pastor. I have known Ryan for a great many years. I have watched him lead in many contexts as a shepherd who leads with humility and with skill and with integrity. And this morning, what I, I want to preach on, what I uh, believe the Lord has led me to teach about is how in difficulties in our lives, our suffering fills up what verse 24 says, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. When tragedies like multiple hurricanes, earthquakes, and then mass shootings pile up, we ask hard questions about suffering. And when you go through trials in your personal life or your family, sometimes it's really hard to find an answer for why some of these things happen to us. And you may not know why some of the hard things you're going through came into your life. But if you know something about what God might be accomplishing through your trials, maybe it will give you courage to stand in them. And these two verses zero in on the question, what does our suffering accomplish? And when you survey the Bible, that question, what does our suffering accomplish, there really are two broad headings that you could group a lot of Bible verses under. An internal work and an external work. And these verses really talk a lot about both. The internal work is, is a work of grace in our lives where God deepens our faith and, and, and sanctifies and grows our faith to maturity. And the external work has to do with the impact God has on the world through the way we trust in Him in our suffering. Both of those are in view in this verse. This verse focuses a little more on the external and what God does in the world the watching world through our suffering. But it's really one of the strangest and most difficult verses in the Bible. 
How can there be anything lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Look at that verse for a second with me. Take a look at it. It almost sounds like heresy. Almost. We need to unpack it together. Starting with the place of suffering in the Christian life. First, a little bit of church history. When the Nicene Creed was first revised in 381, that's when the four marks of the church were first added. Maybe you've heard of the four marks of the church. It goes like this. And if you know it, maybe you can repeat it with me. It says, we believe in one holy, Catholic, or universal, apostolic church. All Christian traditions are heirs to this ancient vision for the church. However, throughout Christian history, in times of persecution and suffering, often a fifth mark of the church has been contemplated. And that mark is suffering. Because though we experience much comfort and blessing on our pilgrimage to the holy city, just as often in a world still broken by the fall, the truth is that suffering and pain and struggle seems to be normal for the Christian, especially for the global church. But here in the West... After 16 centuries of Christendom, living in a nation where religious liberty is enshrined in our Constitution, ideas like suffering is normal for believers in Jesus, or suffering is appointed for us, or it is granted to us, or even necessary for our faith, sounds strange. But it's all through the New Testament. We just, we just don't look at it through a New Testament lens. But if you'll follow me with these examples, maybe you'll see what I'm trying to say. Just follow me as I show these verses on the screen. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Men will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. John 16, 1, Jesus said, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Every radical jihadist believes this when he kills a Christian. Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We all know this verse, but we don't often stop and think that this is a part of it, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Same thing in Philippians 1, 29. We, we know this verse But do we think about what it says? For it has been granted to you that for your sake you should not only believe, but also suffer. It's been granted to you to suffer. It's been granted. It's a a gift from God with a bow on it. Paul says it's for your sake. It's not some random collateral damage from the fall or from living in a broken world. 
The Bible says it's a gift from God with a purpose. 1 Peter 4.12, the apostle writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you see the theme? One more. Acts 5.41, when Peter and John left the presence of the council, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be shamed for the sake of the name. Now, these verses seem to carry two themes. Two themes. One, that suffering is normal for the Christian. And two, that suffering can be the source of intense joy. In Colossians 1, 24 and 25, raise a crucial question we need to think about when following Jesus leads us into suffering. And the question is, what does our suffering as Christians accomplish? And the answer in verse 24 is that our suffering fills up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to understand what Paul was saying with this verse, because it is really a difficult verse. How can there be any lack in the afflictions of Christ? And a number of interpretations have been suggested. Some have suggested that the Christian suffering contributes something to their salvation. But that would go against everything the New Testament says about what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Especially the very last thing he said before he died in John 19.30 when he finished atoning for sin. And he hung his head and he said, it is finished and he died. When he said it's finished, he really meant it. He finished atoning for sin. All of the wrath of the Father that is against your sin, if you're a believer, was poured out on the Son, and there's no more wrath against your sin. He finished atoning for sin. So that verse cannot mean there's any lack in the merit of the death of Christ. So that interpretation would not be correct. Others have argued that Paul was speaking about a special relationship that he alone had to Christ, where his own suffering as the apostle contributed something to the sufferings of Christ. And it's true that Paul had a unique relationship to Christ. He was Jesus' appointed apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus appointed him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And in Acts 9.16, Jesus said specifically, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. And so there was a special relationship there. But I don't think application of this verse should be limited to Paul because throughout the New Testament, uh, the Bible speaks of all of us as fellow sufferers with Christ. So I don't think that's what this verse means. Still others point to the Jewish background of, of, of Paul and specifically a Jewish apocalyptic belief in the first century that the coming of the Messiah at the end of the age would be accompanied by much suffering on the part of God's people. Jews in the first century believed that about end times, that they, the people of God, would, would, be, would suffer. They would be called upon. That would be part of 
bringing in the Messiah that we, God's people, would suffer. And in their apocalyptic writings, that was a theme. And you do see this theme in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, which is an apocalyptic book. And Revelation 6 speaks of a specific number of martyrs appointed to be slain for their witness to the word of God before the return of Christ. So there may be some truth to, to the possibility that Paul was at least aware of this Jewish belief that suffering on the part of God's people would precede the return of Christ. But it doesn't answer the question. How can there be anything lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Here's what the verse means. Paul is not saying our suffering adds anything to the death of Christ. That's not what the word afflictions means here. The Greek term for afflictions is never used in the New Testament to refer to the atonement. It is the Greek word for tribulation, phlipsis, and it refers to all of the difficulties Jesus faced in a fallen world, which he fully embraced in his life on the earth. The afflictions of Christ do include the cross, but they also include all of the trials and troubles and temptations and tears that Jesus faced in his earthly pilgrimage as he learned obedience through what he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. It was his entire earthly life, the afflictions he faced walking and living in a fallen world. And throughout his earthly pilgrimage, Jesus' choice to obey his Father every day demonstrated to others that knowing God is better than any comfort or kingdoms of this world that he might have enjoyed instead of going to the cross. And Jesus fleshed out in his earthly life the message that God is better by choosing obedience in his affliction. And, and so what Jesus did is he made the message of this book that he is better real and visible in his life. His life on this earth was proof that God is better, that others could see. But here's the problem. Jesus is not on the earth today. He's not here in the flesh today. He is here by his spirit in us, but he's not here in the flesh. The message is here in this book, but the world can't see it. They can't taste it. They can't see why Jesus is better or how he is better than anything else in creation. It's not registering with them. It's like, it's like the Bible is, is, is it's sitting there. It's sitting there, right there, and inside this book, there's this story of this God of the universe who made all the heavens and the heavens of heavens, and it's the story of this great God who made everything that exists, and he gave himself to us and his son so that through his son, he could be our father and his son, our brother and our savior, and that story is worth more than all the galaxies of the universe combined together, and he wants to give it all to us, but the world can't see that. But somehow, it, it's pinging off of people's heads. There's something missing in the presentation of the gospel. Don't get me wrong, it's going forth. 
but the knowledge of the great worth of Christ is not sinking in. I can't make it land, and you can't make it land. Only God can make it land. But how? How does God make it land? And verse 24 tells us how. When you choose obedience and submission to God in your affliction in this earthly life, your life demonstrates with power to the world that Jesus is better. And that is what Paul meant when he said, I fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Jesus' death for sin is full and complete and lacking in nothing. But what is missing that people can't see is that they can't see him and they need a presentation of the worth of Christ through a life that demonstrates through obedience and affliction that Jesus is better than any earthly comfort you give up to follow him. For now, Jesus is not here in the flesh. But we are. We are as individuals, and we are as the church. And we enflesh by our obedience when we suffer that he is better. And in that way, we fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We make it visible. We make known what obedience and a maturing faith look like. We make present to the world for as long as Jesus is not in the world that he is better. He is better. And perhaps the best analogy to Paul's language in this verse is Philippians 2.30 where Paul commended Epaphroditus, his friend, to the church in Philippi because Epaphroditus suffered and nearly died to complete what was lacking in the Philippian church's service to Paul. And the Philippian believers could not be with Paul in the flesh, but in Philippians 2.30, Epaphroditus was with Paul in the flesh, and he completed in their place what they could not do for him because they were not present with Paul in the flesh like Epaphroditus was. That's what we do when we suffer in the flesh as followers of Christ. We fill up or complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Because he's not here in the flesh, but we are, and he is in us by his Spirit. And our obedience makes the great worth of Jesus, our King, visible to the world, and it says that Jesus is better. Amen? Amen. He's better. And we do this, verse 24 at the end of the verse, we do this on behalf of the church. At the end of verse 24, Paul said that his suffering was on behalf of the church for this purpose. And the purpose he explains in verse 25. Take a look at verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And here's the purpose of the suffering. To make the word of God fully known. To make God's word fully, not just known, but fully known. So Paul is saying that our primary stewardship or our commission, the Lord gives us a stewardship. He gives us a life to live, a life to manage and live for him. And the stewardship is that in our life of obedience and trusting and submitting to him in our affliction, our life makes his word fully known. And how do we do that? 
How does our obedience to God in suffering make his word fully known? I think the phrase fully known in verse 25 can be understood at least, at least two ways here. And I want us to explore both. When we obey God in our affliction, we make the word of God known more deeply. We go down deeper and, I think, more widely. And I want us to look at both, more deep and more wide. First, let's look at how obedience and affliction makes God's word more fully known, more deeply. And you know what I speak about when I say this. And I know that I am treading on holy ground when I talk about it. But what is it about suffering that makes grace sweeter? What is it about affliction that when we get through it, we say, that was hard I thought I might die, but I wouldn't trade what I went through back there for anything. Why is it that we know God's word is good when times are good, but his promises overwhelm us with joy when life is really hard? I believe it's because in our affliction, the things we could cling to instead of God get stripped away from us until God is all we have. And when he's all we have, we find that he's all we ever really wanted. And when we suffer, what is fleeting and then what is eternal become clear. And we realize that what we really want is the everlasting God. And sometimes it takes affliction for me to see the difference. That's how obedience and suffering makes his word known more deeply. Many of you know that my dad died over about a year and a few months ago. And I've done an awful lot of reflecting and just experiencing gratitude in the past year and a half. And one of the most important things I learned from watching my dad's life is this lesson, that faithfulness is underrated. Because if I could say one thing about my dad, it's that he simply was faithful. He was a faithful man. He was faithful to his church, faithful to his job, faithful to his wife and his children. And he trusted God through three years of cancer, and he was faithful to his last breath. He never sought fame. He was embarrassed by attention. He was just faithful. And I was given a really rare gift on the day we had the hospice conversation over at St. Luke's Hospital when the end was just a, a couple of weeks away. And we had to make decisions about how to care for him, how to manage his pain until Jesus took him home. And there was this sweet older man who shared a room with my dad, and he overheard our family conversation. And he asked when we were done if he could talk with me. And we left dad's room, and when we were alone, he started weeping. And he told me that he had gotten to know dad in their time together that week, sharing a room. This man was a former chaplain who had burned out on the job and felt burned by the church, and he had not been to church in 10 years. But he said he and my dad had spent the week together sharing stories and talking about God an awful lot. And he said that that very morning, about 4 a.m., they were both having trouble sleeping. And, and, and they sat up in bed and sat on the edge of their beds and, and were facing each other for a few minutes. And my dad was in a lot of pain. And he asked him, he said, are you okay, Terry? And this sweet older man said through his tears to me, he said, I looked at your dad in the dark. And I have never seen such peace like I saw in your dad's face. And your dad smiled and he said to me, 
I have never been more ready to see Jesus. I am so ready to see Jesus. And through his pain, he said, I'm okay. And this man that I had only met a few minutes ago grabbed me and he hugged me. And he said, I've been away from God for so long, but I'm coming home. I'm coming home. And I've been thinking about that man's words a lot. And we actually stayed in touch. And yeah, I do love books. And he's actually sent me books. And I've sent him back some, you know. I don't know if that's an idol or, idol or not. But I mean, it's, you know, he's a book guy. Um, but what I learned is that this, this man watched dad trust God in his suffering and in doing this, my dad filled up on behalf of the church and one of her tired servants what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. A public presentation of what it looks like to trust God in affliction. Because Jesus is not here, but we are. And dad made visible what trusting God in suffering looks like and made the word of God more fully known. Suffering brings us closer to Jesus and brings others closer to Jesus, too. And it makes grace sweeter. So it makes the word of God more fully known by making it known more deeply. And it also makes his word known more widely, too. Listen, every time a breakthrough occurs in the gospel reaching an unreached people group, there is always a common factor. No matter what nation, what people group you study... There's always a factor in every situation where there's a breakthrough in the gospel, and that factor is suffering. It's that way in the Bible, and it's been that way throughout the history of missions. It seems like one of God's core strategies is that he makes the fragrance of the gospel message more compelling through the glad suffering of his people among those who need to know him. What do I mean? It's easier to explain this with a story. A former Maasai warrior named Joseph told the story of his conversion to Christ at a Billy Graham evangelist conference in Amsterdam. Joseph was walking a hot desert road in Africa, and a man he met told him about Jesus and the cross and how his sins could be forgiven. And then and there, Joseph accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And Jesus so changed his life. All he wanted to do was go home and share the good news with the Maasai people. And so Joseph went home and started going door to door, telling his family, his neighbors about Jesus and the cross and his suffering so their sins could be forgiven, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. And to his horror, not only did the villagers not care, they became violent, and the men seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. And they dragged him from the village and left him alone to die. And Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. And he crawled to a place where he could think about what happened, and, and he wondered about the hostility he encountered, and he thought, well, maybe I didn't tell the story of Jesus right. So he rehearsed the message once more and went back to share his faith again. And he began to proclaim, Jesus died for you that your sins might be forgiven. And you can come to know the living God. And again they beat him and drug him from the town and left him to die. And he awoke days later, bruised and scarred, but determined to go back and tell 
his family and his tribe about the love of this God who had found him. But before he could speak, they started to beat him and attack him again. But just before he passed out, he spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord once more. And the last thing he saw was the women who had been beating him starting to cry. This time he awoke in his own bed. And the ones who had so severely beat him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. Joseph, the Messiah warrior, turned evangelist through his suffering, filled up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ because he was willing to suffer to share the good news of Jesus. And by this, he proved to his own people that Jesus is really better. And they were broken by their sins and broken by the love of God, and they were saved. His glad obedience and suffering brought his entire village to Christ. And I just want to say this one word of encouragement to you. This is what God is doing through your affliction. When you trust your life to him, no matter how hard the road is, God has asked you to walk with him. He makes the fragrance of grace so powerful And he makes the gospel so beautiful and so compelling because in your suffering, the world sees the power of the gospel because your life is saying with humility that Jesus really is better. Lord God, Lord, I know that I am speaking of words that I can barely even understand myself because I am so often filled with so many cares that this world tempts me with, throws at me, makes me want to think that there's other things here that I should hold on to. But then, God, when you afflict me in your love as a father who loves his children and with your tender and loving hands pull away from me things that don't matter and I see that you alone the eternal God are the only one I should hunger for I really do find that you're the only one we want you're the only one we need and I pray that God you would work in us so that as we cling to you our lives our church God we would be a people that the aroma of the gospel would be so beautiful and so compelling that the power of the name of Jesus would go forth from our lives and others would want to know why Jesus means so much to us. I pray this in his glorious name. Amen.